I invite you to join me in Romans 3, if you are not there already. Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. We're going to open with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage this evening in anticipation even of coming to this table together, we come in humility. For Lord, we know our hearts. We are a sinful people. Lord, if we are honest, we must confess that even today we have strayed. Even today we have fallen short. And yet, Lord, the good news of the gospel is that our hope is not in our performance, but our hope is in the finished, sufficient work of Christ, even as we have just confessed in song. So, Lord, we come humbly this evening, and yet we come boldly in Christ alone. Crying out, Abba, Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And Lord, truly that is our desire, that your name would be lifted high. That you would get the glory that you alone deserve. So even in this hour, as we turn our attention to this passage, work through your word in our hearts and lives, even something that we know so well, like the gospel, May we not grow tired to it, but may we stand in awe this evening of your love, of your grace, of your justice and mercy. Do a work in our hearts. Do a work among us, Lord, for your glory. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As we come to this passage this evening... Obviously, we're jumping in in chapter 3 of Romans, and there's context to what the author of Romans is, is saying in, here in this passage, the progression of, his, uh, of Paul's argument through the book of Romans. And really, you can go back to Romans 1, verses 16 to 17, where Paul, in that passage at the very beginning, really introduces us to one of the themes that runs throughout this powerful book. It is the theme of the gospel and the power of the gospel. It's a well-known passage. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And yet it goes on, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's a powerful passage right there that really sets kind of the scene for the rest of the book of Romans. In fact, Paul goes on in the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2, even the beginning of chapter 3, to really lay the foundation from there. He goes on to show the great sinfulness of man. And not just that man over there and that man over there, but all men. Both Jew and Greek. Rich and poor. 
There is no excuse. We all fall short. And that's why we need the gospel. It's a beautiful book. So after laying that foundation, after drawing that attention, pointing out the great sinfulness of man, now you come to verse 21, where Paul returns back to the idea of the righteousness of God. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. One of the things I mentioned at the beginning with those kids' notes is I want to make our evening service more attainable for children, more, uh, or want to prepare with them in mind without dumbing down what it is that we are saying. And so I've taken some time this evening. One of the things I want to do is there's some, there's some big words in this passage. And so I want to take some time to define those words. In fact, many of us who are older, we probably need these to be redefined. They're words that we know, words that we've interacted with, words that we use. Maybe we, it's been a while since we paused to think about what they mean. So as we get started, before we even get to our first point, one of the key words in this passage, really in this book of Romans, is the word righteousness. What is righteousness? Well, a simple definition really would be to say God is righteous. Righteousness can be generally defined very simply as rightness. Righteousness is rightness. It is God's right standard. God is inherently right. Not just factually, the things that he says are right, but morally, inherently, he is right. And he always acts according to his rightness. So children, you can write that down in your notes. What is righteousness? It is rightness. God is always right. But the problem, going back even to what we saw in Romans 1.18, is that we are unrighteous. We have fallen short of God's right standard. There is a problem here. And as you come to verse 21, Paul is returning to this idea. God's wrath has been revealed against the unrighteousness of God, or of man. Going back to chapter 1, verse 18. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. God has made his righteousness known. He has made it available to the unrighteous. And not know what it says. This comes apart from the law. So it is not by conformity. It's not that I can be made righteous by conforming to God's law. This righteousness of God comes apart from the law. And really this is our first point. Confess your sin. Salvation is available. God has made his righteousness available to the unrighteous, not by conformity through obedience to the law. But, as verse 22 goes on to say, this righteousness, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. This righteousness does not come by conformity, it comes by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ specifically in who he is and what he has done. 
In fact, the end of verse 21 goes on to tell us that the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Even the law itself testifies, there is no salvation in me. Look to one who is greater. We saw that as we worked our way through the book of Hebrews not that long ago. That even the law points us forward to someone who is greater. There's no salvation in the law. Righteousness does not come through the law. But even the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And note here the phrase, to all and on all who believe. On all who believe. The good news of these verses, brothers and sisters, is that salvation is available. To those who are lost, to those who are separated from God, that is the best news we could ever hear. Salvation is available. And do you know what makes it all the sweeter? This is what we go on to see in the end of verse 22 into 23. Salvation is available, and that's all the sweeter, because salvation is needed by all. For there is no difference. This is the very point that Paul has made in chapters, in the end of chapter 1 and 2, in the beginning of chapter 3. There is no difference. Being a Jew does not somehow put you closer to reaching God's righteousness. There is no difference. Jew, Greek, rich, poor. Whether you live in Ankeny or Altoona, wherever you are from, whoever you are, there is no difference. For all have sinned. There we see that word again, all. Just as faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, that is good news for all have sinned. Salvation is available to all, and that's great news because salvation is needed by all. Every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God, have fallen short of that righteous expectation. That good and right expectation of God. We've all fallen short of His holiness. All fallen short of His glory. We have missed the mark. The good news of the gospel first starts with the very difficult news that you are a sinner. Condemned to die, separated from a holy God. God is righteous and you are unrighteous. And you're part of all. You have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But brothers and sisters, rejoice for salvation is available to all. In fact, even as we come to this table... Is that not what we are doing as we look back at the cross? We're not saying, as we look back at the cross, I'm glad that, that God found me good enough. I'm glad that, that my righteousness has reached a level where I can come to this table. Really, communion is a humbling thing. 
as we together as a church look back at the cross and every single one of us confesses to the other, I am a sinner and I need that cross. I, I am one of these all who have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That's me. And yet the beauty of it is we do not stay there. But as we look back at the cross, we rejoice that the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ has come to all who believe, and I am one of those. Praise the Lord. So that's the first thing that we see, the call to confess your sin, even in this passage. All have sinned. But then also, we rejoice in the grace of God and some more definitions that we'll see in these upcoming verses. First, the word grace. It's a word that we often use. We talk about grace. We sang even this morning. Amazing grace. What is grace? Grace is God's undeserved favor. It is God giving me something that I do not deserve. Another word that we see in this passage, specifically in verse 24, being justified. What is the idea of to be justified or to be, or the idea of justification even as we sometimes see it? To be justified is to be declared to be righteous. Those of us, all men who, who is unrighteous, those of us who have placed our faith in Christ alone, God declares us to be righteous. He has justified us. And finally, another really big word we see in this passage is the word propitiation. And really that is the idea of to be restored to a right relationship with God. To be restored. That, that relationship that has been broken by sin has been restored. And the key in this passage, the thing that you see over and over and over again, is that it is God who has done this. It is God who has done this. We start in verse 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified, right? Being declared righteous. How? How much does this cost me? What do I have to do to be justified? Is there a certain amount of money that I have to pay? Is there some great deed that I have to do? What does the passage say? Being justified... Freely. How can that be? I am justified freely by God's grace. It is Him giving me what I do not deserve. I as undeserving as I am, I am declared righteous by the one who is righteous. By his grace. Now here's really the question. This is the core of this whole passage. How can this be? How can this be? How can God declare someone who is unrighteous, God who is righteous, 
how can he declare someone who is unrighteous to be righteous like him? I mean, that sounds good to us, right? I'm glad that God has declared me righteous, but that's not really fair. That's the whole point of grace, right? I don't deserve this. It's not fair. So if God is also just, which we'll see in this passage, how can he declare me who is unrighteous to be righteous? It seems like we have two attributes of God at odds here. Either he is just, and he will punish me for my sin, as he should, or he is grace, and he will forgive my sin, as I want He's either my judge or my savior, but how could he be both? If God overlooks my sin, he's no longer just, as as much as I want that. He can't just dismiss it and overlook it, or he's not just. And yet, if he punishes me for my sin, then he cannot be my savior. So I find myself between a rock and a hard place. How can God do this? How can he justify me who is unrighteous? How can he declare me to be righteous by grace? That's what we see in verses 20, the, the end of verse 20, beginning of verse 25. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. It is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus paid my penalty. That is the the logic of the gospel. God does not just dismiss my sin. That would be unjust. The good news of the gospel is that God paid my penalty. How could that be? How can Jesus Christ pay my penalty? Because God sent him forth as a propitiation, as one with the goal of setting things right to pay my penalty and thus restoring me to a right relationship with him. And how did Jesus do this? By his blood. By his blood. The wages of sin is death. As Romans 6.23 reminds us. God could not just overlook sin. Sin had to be paid and it demands blood. And the blood of bulls and of goats, it's not good enough. We saw that as we worked our way through the book of Hebrews. There's no salvation there. But the blood of bulls and goats points us forward to a powerful blood. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of God made flesh. Even as we just celebrated the incarnation at Christmas. Jesus Christ who took on flesh, who was born, who lived, who died for me. He shed his blood for me. It's my blood that should be shed. But God restored my relationship with him by sending Jesus to die in my place. It is through his blood that I am able to be justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, those, those next two words, through faith, 
through faith. It's already the second time in this passage that that word has showed up, and it will be there one more time in verse 26. Through faith. My salvation is secured by the blood of Jesus Christ. I have nothing to add to what Jesus has done. I simply accept. I simply believe and accept. As you move on, we have one more phrase to define. It's the idea of God's justice. God is just. When we say that God is just, we are speaking of God's fairness in terms of judgment. God is and always does what is right. We already saw that, right? That's righteousness. But he always also demands what is right and punishes what is wrong because God is just. So now in this passage, after walking through all of this, how I am forgiven and declared to be righteous by grace through Jesus Christ who shed his blood for me by believing in that, by trusting. We see here how God remains just. How is it that God remains just and yet can be my Savior? And we marvel at God's justice. But we see here, to demonstrate his righteousness, to prove who he is, to show who he is, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. It's not as if God turned a blind eye to all the sins before the cross. It's not that he ignored them. Rather, he set them aside, withholding judgment, knowing that Jesus was coming. He passed over them. Why? To demonstrate right now, at the present time, his righteousness. So that I could see it. That I could look back to the cross that loudly testifies to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, his justice of God. And God did all this that he might be just and justifier. Of the one who has faith in Jesus. That dilemma that we saw earlier, the answer to that dilemma, how can God be both just and Savior? The answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that covers me. The blood of Jesus Christ that pays for my sins. Thus God remains just. Justice has been done. Sin has been paid for. And God becomes justifier. The one who brings salvation. I would challenge you, brothers and sisters, spend some time this week meditating, meditating on that phrase, that he might be just and justifier. It's an amazing thought. And God has done this. That he might be the justifier of 
the one, anyone, who has faith in Jesus. So as we come to this table this evening, we come looking back to the cross. We come confessing our sins. We don't come to the table in some self-righteous manner. I'm coming to this table because I think I deserve to be here. I think I've been good enough this week to where I can come rightly to this table. That's not the right way to approach this table. We come in humility, confessing our sin. And yet we come rejoicing in the cross of Jesus Christ as we look back and remember his blood that was shed for me. His body for me. And yet at the same time, we marvel at the justice and the righteousness of God. What a God that we serve. As we come to this table, yes, it's a memorial as we look back, but it is also an act of worship as we marvel at our God. And as we look forward, proclaiming these things until he returns. So brothers and sisters, we're going to come to this table. And we are going to confess to one another that we are sinners. And even as we do that, we are going to rejoice in the cross of Jesus Christ. You do not have to be a member of Altoona Regular Baptist Church to join us at this table. But you do have to be one who has placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation. You do have to be one who has been obedient in believer's baptism. And I would encourage you, even as we come to this table, to take some time, even just a second, as we're going to sing Hallelujah, What a Savior, number 286. And even as we sing that, take some time to pause and to prepare your heart. Maybe there's some sin that needs to be dealt with right now. Maybe there's someone in this room that you need to go to and make things right with. But as we come to this table, prepare your heart. As we confess our sin, as we rejoice in the cross, and as we marvel at the righteousness and the justice and the goodness of our God. Let's stand together and sing number 286, Hallelujah, What a Savior.